great night. Um, shout out to Matt, our kids pastor, and our kids team for putting that on. Uh, it was just really a great night of just getting to shoot your children over and over with Nerf darts. And uh, uh, I, I do have to say, though, that I was the subject of many times not-so-friendly fire. Uh, we were supposed to be on the same team, and a certain couple of small children, not my own, just kept shooting me in the back of the head over and over and over and over. And I was like, okay, well, I guess that's, uh, <laughs> that's the fun that we're going to have. Then y'all looking good today in your red. Looking good. Some of you didn't get the memo. You're in black chief's clothing or white chief's clothing. It was red Sunday. We were very specific about that. So we'll try again maybe in two weeks, hopefully. Uh, but uh, yeah, glad to, to see you all uh, dressed up. Hope it's a, a fun evening for all of us and that we're not uh, preaching from Lamentations next week. But we'll get into that uh, later on. Hey, we're glad you're here with us. If you're, if you're visiting, we're glad that you're here. My name is Kurt. Uh, just honored to get to be here with you today. If you're joining us online, we're glad that you're here. Uh, we're starting a new series today called Generous. I told you guys first of the year we were going to do a few series that kind of get back to the core of who we are, what we do, why we do it. Today we're going to start a three-week series where we're going to look at possession and, and what that means, and we're just calling it generous. Uh, but as we get ready to start today, I want a little crowd participation here. If you've got at least one free hand, I want you to do this. If you've got both hands, I want you to do this. Uh, I'm going to tell you to go here in a second, and when I do, I want you to make a fist, clench it and hold it as tight as you possibly can until I tell you to stop. Okay, ready? And, okay, hold on, wait, that's the one-hour timer, I don't want that. <laughs> go. Okay, I'm going to run a timer on this, and we'll see this. I'll distract you while we're doing this, though. Uh, you can raise your fists in the air. Who thinks the Chiefs are going to win close today? Who thinks the Chiefs are going to win big today? Who's like me and does not have a good feeling about this game whatsoever today? <laughs> I, I, I got to be honest, I don't have a good feeling. I hope I am wrong, but, but the good thing is I'm acknowledging college basketball this weekend because my Sooners won a game yesterday and won by 25 points over the number two team in the country, so I'll acknowledge college basketball today. I won't probably next week, but for today, it's a great sport, isn't it? Wonderful. <laughs> Always good when your team actually shows up and cares. We're almost there. We've got about 15 seconds left. How else can I ramble? Uh, I'd shoot some more Nerf darts if I could get them back, but I probably won't get them back in time. And this thing takes a long time to load. But, but um, yeah, so, okay, you can go ahead in five, four, three, two, one, and you can let your hands go. I heard it. How's it feel? Hurt a little bit, didn't it? Okay, some of you, when you, when you, let, your, you let your fist go, is it kind of like this? Oh. I watched it at 8 o'clock for probably the next 5, 10 minutes. People are doing kind of what Karen's doing right here, rubbing your hands or grabbing your forearms. See, this is, the reason I did all this is because your arms are going to hurt all day. Now you won't forget what I talked about. Because <laughs> you're like, oh, man, that was a phenomenal sermon. <laughs> Never going to forget that one. <laughs> now, you think about this. Because that's just kind of a, an illustration, a symbol of life sometimes. You ever hold on to something so tight that you can't let it go? Maybe it's your time. Uh, like we only get so much time in a day, and if you want to, to uh, dive into something new or try something new, um, sometimes it's hard to get your time just right. I'm this way. I would love to get up every morning and work out, but I have a hard time letting go of the time that I use in the evening to get to bed early enough so I can get up in the morning. Or maybe it's our energy. We do this a lot of times with, with habits or, or hobbies. Sometimes it's hard to break a bad habit. It's not so much like a... a 
bad thing that we do, but just maybe a use of our time because our energy is so focused in one area that it's hard to let go of that to give it to something else. Maybe it's with our possessions and our finances, and you think, man, I would love to be more generous, but I just can't let go of this stuff over here. And the truth of the matter is the longer we hold on to something, the more difficult it is to let go of it. We're going to talk today specifically about the idea of ownership and about stewardship. And over the next two weeks, we're going to dive deeper into this idea of what it means to ultimately let go and live a generous life with everything that we have. But when it comes to the topic of ownership, we're going to go back to our hands today because we're going to look at three postures that we often use or that we should use when it comes to this. The first is already up there. The first posture is a tight fist posture. Uh, you guys, again, you just did this, you held on to this for a while, but you kind of get the idea of what a tight-fisted posture might be. As parents, there is a couple of words our children just instinctively learn, probably somewhere around the time they're about 18 months to two years old and they'll cling to for a while. One of them is the word no. They don't really need to be taught that, although that, in my case, my kids heard that so much, they actually thought that was their name for a while. Uh, but what's the other word? Anybody, can, can anybody guess it? It's the word mine. We don't have to teach our children that word, but yet they, they seem to learn that. Uh, when we were uh, living in Arizona, Elsie was about uh, three or so, and I took her to McDonald's one day and had eaten my food, and she wasn't paying attention to her, so I reached over and grabbed a couple of her fries, and she like glares at me. She goes, those are mine. I said, you listen here, you little jerk. Where do you think those came from? I, I didn't say all of that. I said part of that, not all of it. No, it's just a word our kids learn. Like, our, like they, they just know it. What they have is theirs. They don't want to share it. My youngest, Titus, he's almost five. And a couple weeks ago, we had some friends at the house. They've got a one-year-old. He's in the middle of our living room floor. We had brought some of Titus's stuff for him to play with to entertain him. And... Uh, it was all fine until Titus realized what he was doing. And then he went sort of taking all of his toys away and, and trying to keep Wade from getting a hold of him. And I mean, Titus, he's got these tiny little arms and he's just piling all this stuff in his arms. And it's almost comical because he's kind of doing this squat thing and it's spilling out. And, and he's just trying to keep Wade or anybody else from getting his toys. And it's funny, but it's not funny because we're exactly the same way way too often. We're trying to pile everything that we have into our arms and, and hold it in such a way that nobody else could possibly get a hold of it. And the problem is, with this tight-fisted mentality, with this, this is mine mentality, what often happens is we forget about an absolute biblical truth that God actually owns everything anyway. He owns it all in the first place. In Psalm chapter 24, uh, we, we read this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. David wrote this psalm, and years later, David, this, this man after God's own heart, this man who, who killed a giant named Goliath, who, who led Israel as king for 40 years, was probably the most powerful person on earth, winning battle after battle, victory after victory for God and for Israel, one of the big three of the Old Testament. David prayed this prayer that's recorded in 1 Chronicles 29. He says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory and the majesty, everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. But here's the problem too many of us get when it comes to what we have. We, we take one of two trains of thought often. The first is the thought of, well, I earned this. 
I worked hard. I deserve this. I, I went and got a degree or I went and, and, and put myself through, through trade school. I went and scrapped and, and, and worked double time. I, I worked overtime and extra shifts to provide for my family. And, and so this is mine. And, and that's the mentality that, that a lot of us have. Got a friend from back home who grew up dirt poor. I mean, scraping by, hoping they had food or money for food. And he wound up actually building an empire. He, he built a, it's kind of funny because he was dirt poor. He got incredibly wealthy off of a soil business. So he's dirt rich. I mean, he went from dirt poor to filthy rich, literally. But uh, to see him build it off of his own just gumption, off of his own drive and desire. And he's an incredibly generous person, but we, we too often have that mentality. If I built this, I earned this, I deserved this, I got this because I worked hard, I climbed the corporate ladder, I worked and did what I needed to do. The other mindset that too often we get is that we recognize God has blessed us, but we treat it like a Christmas present. Somebody gives something to you for for a present, for a Christmas present, a birthday present, whatever it may be, well, you didn't buy it, you didn't earn it, but it was given to you, so now it's yours. And that's how our kids operate around Christmas especially. But here's kind of the problem with this. When we look at this mentality, we, we think that what we have belongs to us and that it's ours and we get to decide and we can do whatever we want with it. But the truth of the matter is God doesn't actually give you stuff to have. He gives you stuff to steward. He gives you stuff to use for his benefit. Kind of like driving a company car, if any of you have ever done this. You get to take this, you get to keep it, you get to use it as your own, but you don't own it. It's ultimately the property of your company. You're using it for their benefit. You're using it for the benefit of your job. But it's easy for us, I think, at times to assume we're the ones who've earned everything that we have because that's the American way. That's our mindset and our mentality that we tend to file away. But we're warned to not have that mentality in Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says, You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. So remember this, what it's saying right up here. Even if you earned something, if, if through your gifts and your talents and your ability you have earned a good paycheck, and you've earned what you have, it's only because God gave you the ability to earn it to begin with. And you may say, well, I created these things. I, I built these things. I, I, I came up with all of this. Okay, sure, maybe you did. But where did all that stuff that you built it from come from? I mean, it says in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Where there's not just, poof, randomly some new thing that, that you invented, you held your hand out, and boom, there it was to create something else. It all came from what God has created for us and in us and through us. See, I think the problem often is not a matter of what we do or don't have. The problem we often have in our own hearts and lives is how we respond to what God has allowed us to have or what he has not allowed us to have. And often, again, that comes with a tight-fisted mentality. And the problem is, again, the longer you keep your hands clenched, the harder it is to let them go. Maybe you have heard of this story or remember this story But in 1987, there was a pilot by the name of Henry Edwards. He took off on a small plane from Portland, Maine, flying to Boston. Short flight, low altitude, low speed flight. But but he's there and he's got a co-pilot with him. They were headed to pick up passengers and fly on. 
And just shortly after takeoff, when they got to altitude, they heard a noise in the back of the plane. And Henry goes to check it out. He put his co-pilot in charge of the stick. And as he's checking it out, he hears this, it's a noise with the door. It wasn't sealed properly. And as he's trying to fix it, it actually popped open. And he was sucked out of the plane. Uh, the the co-pilot recognized it immediately. He heard the noise. He looked back, didn't see him. And so he radios to the ground control. And they made an emergency landing as fast as he possibly could. And they immediately sent people to go look in that area for this pilot who had gotten sucked out of this plane at 4,000 feet elevation. And as they exited the plane, they realized he was holding on to the ladder right below the door. Like he, he grabbed it and just by some miracle was able to, to keep a clenched fist on that bottom rung of that ladder until the plane hit the ground. But here's the remarkable part of this. When they found him, it took them 15 minutes to get his hands free from the ladder. He was literally holding on for dear life at 4,000 feet at more than 200 miles an hour and literally holding on to save his own life. It took them 15 minutes to get his hands where they would release that. And we think about this because often that's where we find ourselves. We are clinging on to something because we think that we need to cling on to it for dear life. And the longer and the harder we hold on to it, the harder it is to let go of it. And maybe that's you. You've, you've got that mentality, I earned this, I worked for this, I provided for my family, and, and we're going to keep what's ours. And you've got that mentality there. Can I just say something? This may not be a popular statement, but the idea of mine does not fit and does not work in a kingdom-minded church or in a kingdom-focused Christian. It just doesn't. The moment you start to look at your bank account and start to look at your possessions and you say, this is mine, is the moment you start to uninvite God from the decision-making process in your life, specifically when it comes to your material possessions and your finances. And let me just say this. God can't bless what you don't give him control of. I don't believe that he can. Yes, are there people who get wealthy and have no room for God in their lives? Of course there are. We see it all the time. And maybe they'll continue to stay that way. But in terms of what you truly have and being a blessing to other people, God can't bless it if you don't give him control of it. If you keep it away and you hide it and you just try to pile it all in your own arms like Titus does with his toys... It's not going to be able to be blessed for everybody else. That's a tight-fisted mentality. Here's the second posture that we need to, to think about, the one that we need to adopt as Christians. It's open hands. You go from tight fists to open hands. Open hands are where joy and peace come from. Open hands are a sign of surrender. And, and, and yeah, you may think, well, surrender doesn't mean peace and joy. It means giving up. Exactly. Because when it comes to surrendering to God, that's exactly what we're doing. We're giving him control because we're relinquishing that control. And here's the thing about, excuse me, about the open hands posture. When you have an open hands posture with your finances, what you're doing is you're not only inviting God into the process, but you're declaring my finances are a spiritual matter. And therefore, I need to trust God more than I trust myself in everything that I do and everything that I spend. Now, kind of hear me, because there's a little bit of a limit on this. Okay, like, you don't need to be sitting there in the drive through line at Taco Bell going, God, I've got $10 to spend. Would you rather me get the party pack or a couple of five-liter burritos? Your will be done. It's not quite that deep. If, if, if that is your prayer, I mean, number one, God bless you, but number two, 
God bless you, okay? Like, seriously, that's probably a little stress going on that you need to worry about there. No, what it does is it, 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 it's you announcing that you're inviting God to not only have a role, but to have a say-so in your budget, in how you prioritize, and how you, not just how you spend, but how you think, how you go through the process. Because here's kind of the truth of the matter. Often, for all of us, when it comes to our possession and our finances and our bank account, let's just be very honest, that's one of the most important things in our life. Usually it's right after our children and our family. Why? Because we're in a tough economy and we need that to survive. We've got to go buy groceries. We've got to put gas in the car. We've got to pay the bills. We've got mortgage that's out there. Rent might be coming due. Um, you've got kids that, that are maybe getting ready to head towards college, or you've got to buy them stuff for school. There's just stuff that, that really is, is needs that are out there that we, we worry about and we stress about. And often that's where those tight-fisted mindsets come into play. But when we learn to let that go, and give that to God, that's where peace and joy start to flood in. That's where blessing starts to flood in. Now, I, before you start to get the look on your face, I, I know some of you are probably thinking, here it comes. New pastor up here, he's going to get things started right by telling us we need to start giving a whole lot more to the church. He's going to tell us that you know, we need to, boy, crank up and get a record, record offering this week. No, that's, that's not what I'm talking about today. And I, I want you to hear my heart, not just in this today, but this, in, this whole series. This is not about what Crossroads Christian Church can get or benefit from you all. It's not about what me personally or Brad or anybody else on staff can get or benefit from you all. This isn't about us saying, hey, let's pile up the offerings so we can maybe build a new building or, or, or you know, buy all sorts of cool new lights or new toys or we can hire a bunch of more staff or go have all this stuff to go do all these, these cool things out in the, in the community. That is not what it's about. I want you to hear my heart with this. Okay, let me be very clear. We're talking about the God who spoke the universe into existence. He doesn't need what we give him. In fact, I would say it like this. God doesn't need your money, but he demands your heart. Because often when it comes to our finances, it's not about what we can give so somebody else can do something. It's what we, what we are willing to let go of because it matters and means so much to us. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 that to not store up treasures for ourselves on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But he says to, to store up treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not. And I would even paraphrase this and say where thieves cannot break in and steal. And I love this last part, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Can I let you know a little secret here? Where your finances are, that's your treasure. Where you're prioritizing, they always say you, you can tell a lot about an organization by looking at their budget. You can tell what they care about, what they value by where their budget is, where, where most of the money goes. Same applies to us. Where is most of what you're spending, where does that go? Where is that going into? Because that'll tell you where your treasure is. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be. It's not the other way around. It's not, well, my heart is here, so my money's going to follow. No, he says it's in a more practical standpoint. And often when it comes to the church, that, that comes out in the form of tithing. And we're going to talk more about that later on in this series. I'm just going to kind of, kind of tap into it just a, a moment here today. Because often I think too many times we view tithing as if we're tipping God. God, you did a pretty good job this year, so here's an extra 10. 
You know, that's kind of the, the mindset that we have. I, I'm one of these, when I go to a restaurant, I don't tip based on a percentage. I don't like that. Uh, maybe some of you do. That's fine. Uh, I've seen some people get their calculator out and get an exact amount, or they, they look at that thing on the bottom of the ticket. Uh, I don't like that. I just do a set amount. And part of that is because I once worked in a restaurant where we served pretty cheap food, and I got 2 or $3 tips because of it. had a friend who worked at a steakhouse. He was getting $50, $60 tips. I'm like, well, that's not fair. I know I'm better at this job than you are. I didn't say that to his face, but I, I assumed I was. He was kind of weird. But that's... <laughs> We, we get this, right? You can go to a meal that's, that's $15, $20 or one that's $80. And your server at the $15, $20 meal could do a better job. I just tip a flat rate. And, and too often I think we, we assume God is here for the tips. That's not what it's about. It, we, we look at this idea of, of this 10% tithe. And, and that's, that's kind of this, this idea that, we, that, that many Christians have rolled with for, for centuries now that we'll tithe 10%, and I'll, I'll get into more of that later. But let's just say that's what you do. If you tithe 10%, okay, you're not saying, God, you've done such a good job. Here's 10% of what I made last year. Okay, I made $50,000. Here's your $5,000. Don't spend it all in one place. No, that's not what we're doing. What you're doing is you're saying, God, I trust you. In fact, I trust you to give me the wisdom to, to do more with the 90% that's left than if I was taking the 100% all on my own. That's what tithing really is. And you may say, Kurt, you don't understand. This is a tough time to, to do this. No, I do. I get it. Maybe at the end of 2022, you didn't get a raise at your job. But yet, last I checked, the cost of eggs, the cost of gas, the cost of everything is still climbing. And you may say, I just can't do it this year. I can't do it this year. My budget is strapped to the penny. It's already where, where it's, it's maxed out. I can't give anything more. I can't, I, can't, I can't even give the 10% right now. Can I remind you of something? Tithing is the only area of your life where you're actually invited to test God. I was always told growing up, don't try to test God. You know, you're not supposed to do that. Like, God, if you're really there, let me jump off of here and you'll catch me. You know, like, no, don't test him. But here's one area where you're invited to do so. And in fact, it says in Malachi 3, God speaking through the prophet Malachi, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room to store it all. Uh, when I was... Uh, just out of high school, my, my, going into my first year of college, my, my parents divorced. My dad is a police officer and was kind of the main breadwinner for our family. My mom uh, was a, an attorney's secretary. And just a small, it was just one attorney. It wasn't a law office or anything, or like a, a firm. Um, and didn't make very much. And um, realized very quickly, I'm a freshman in college. My brother's a freshman in high school. And here she is now with a house payment and all the bills and it's going to be really tough to make ends meet making the salary that she made. She decided it's, I need to go back to school, and which was really fun because my first two years of college, I got to go to class with my mom. Um, exactly how everybody wants to start college. But uh, went back to go to nursing school, and uh, I mean, she was working part-time. And in fact, my second year of college, I'll never forget this, and it, it's just because of the situation, but my second year of college, I was working at a quick trip in my hometown, and uh, I made more money than my mom made that year. And I think I made around $12,000, kind of where we were at financially. This was 
Not, you know, way back when. This is 2002, 2003. And um, my mom is very meticulous. Had her budget laid out, and to the penny, it was going to match. She made just enough. I was helping her out a little bit with the bills, with, um, you know, food, with gas, with all those things that you have to have to get by. And to the penny, it was going to match, with one exception. She wasn't going to have money to pay her tithe. Now, my mom has grown up in church. She's known this her whole life. She didn't really need to be told what to do, but my grandpa came in and reminded her anyway, well, you know what you've got to do first. You don't make God wait. You give him his first, then you worry about the rest of it. And it's just remarkable because for that two-year stretch, we never didn't have enough money. We never didn't have enough. There was never a time we didn't have to, to, to have food or we couldn't have food on the table and had to skip a meal. There was never a time she couldn't pay a bill. There was never a time that she, she couldn't make ends meet. And some of you are sitting there going, this makes zero sense whatsoever. That's the point. Because it doesn't fit how we want it to, to fit. God's accounting doesn't go by our logic. And, and here's my, my thing. I'll, I'll believe this and my mom will swear to this too. That had she, she done what made logical sense and not tithe, I have no doubt we would have been short almost every month. The, the things would have gotten out of our control, but she trusted God with the remaining percentage. And, and God made ends meet, and then over the course of time, my mom, I mean, it's not like just huge lumps of cash started showing up in her doorstep. But over the course of time, because she was faithful to God in that, she not only finished nursing school, but she wound up getting a good job, and then she wound up marrying my stepdad, and later went back and got a bachelor's degree, and later got her master's degree, and now, 20 years later, runs the very nursing department that she was struggling to make ends meet to attend. God is faithful, and he asks us to be faithful in return. He asks us to trust him in return. That's an open hands mindset. Here's one more posture. It's the third posture we're going to talk about. And it's the palms down posture. Now you may say, what's the difference? You've got closed fists and open fists. What about palms down? Well, if this is the sign of surrender, palms down, on your face and on all fours before God, is the sign of submission. And hear me out because this is where the challenge comes in. The palms down posture is one where you are radically trusting in God. And sadly, it's one that most Christians don't fit into this category. We, we like to think that we do. We want to be there, but most of us don't. And the statistics actually back this up. A recent survey showed that only about 15 to 20, 25% of regular attending, excuse me, regular attending church members tithe on a regular basis. 15 to 25% of this. And I'm not picking on you guys. Try to hear me, Okay of regular attending church folk tithe on a regular basis. Another survey showed as little as 5% of people who attend at all give anything, period. And here's kind of the, the more staggering part of that is those who do attend on a regular basis and do tithe give about 2.5% of their income. You want to get a little humbled by that? During the Great Depression, they gave 4%. During a decade of the, the greatest financial and economic depression our country has known, they gave more than the church is giving now. Now, hear me, because when it comes to tithing, we again have this idea that 10% is what we should give. That's not a mandate. Okay, yes, there's examples in the Old Testament of 10% being given. That's not necessarily a mandate, and we'll get more into that in a couple of weeks. 
But it could be a good starting point. Could be a good starting point for you. I know for, for us, with Jennifer and I, there have been several times we've tried to increase that. And, and I, I wish I could say we've done it every single year. We haven't. But I know this year we decided we're going to up our giving this year. We're going to up our percentage this year. I've got several friends in ministry who have done this every year of their ministry, every year of their, their marriage. And, and what's, what's amazing is when you hear the number, they're not saying it to brag. They're saying it to show how faithful God has been. I've got one of my friends in ministry, him and his wife tithed 60% of their income back to the church to the point where he's almost not even taking a paycheck anymore. Uh, you, you may have heard the story of Rick Warren. Rick Warren, the, the pastor from Saddleback Church in, in, in California, wrote the, the book, The Purpose Driven Life. When he got into ministry, he didn't have much, like so many pastors do. But he said, I was always, I've just always been generous. I've always liked to give what I have away. And I made God a promise, God, if you, if you ever bless me financially, I will do this job for nothing. And several years later, he wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life which went on to become one of the biggest selling books of all time. And, and if you hear him talk about it, he goes, that comes with a nice reward. He goes, but my wife was very quick to remind me of the promise I made to God. He goes, so I not only stopped taking a paycheck, I actually was able to repay every penny Saddleback Church had ever given him. 30 years worth of salary. He was able to pay it all back. And he was able to give more and more from his books away. He still makes money off of his books. He tithes over 95% of what he gets. Now again, he said that very clearly, he goes, some people will say, well, God, if you bless me and, and make me wealthy, I'll do the same thing. And he was quick to say, no, you won't, because you're not doing it now. Be generous with what you have. I, I get it. Some of you say, I would love to do that, Kurt, but right now it's just brutal. This, maybe, maybe you should come back and preach this next year. <laughs> Save it, put it in the box, come back, preach it in a year or two because things are tough and difficult right now. I get it. The last three years have been so hard and so brutal on our economy. Uh, the, the pandemic shut down businesses. People lost their jobs. Growth was stifled. Right now we're in the middle of recession and inflation. I, I, I get it. And here I am challenging you. To, to either start giving to the, to the church or to maybe give more to the church. And the response we typically hear from people is, I would love to, but I just can't do it. I just can't, not right now. Can I give you one, one promise? You cannot outgive God. And if you think that you can, can I challenge you to try it? See if you can outgive God. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now again, I want you to hear something else before we go any further into this series. I am not and will never be talking about what we would call the prosperity gospel. Maybe you've heard uh, evangelists talk about this or some pastors or preachers talk about this where, well, if you give more this year, God will bless you financially. And usually they, their voice sounds like that for some reason. I don't know why, but it's big and bold like that. And, and meanwhile, they're pocketing money and, and flying around the world on jets. And, and you kind of wonder how, how much that's going. But that is not what we are talking about here. You will never hear me say, if you up your giving, God will reward you and your, your salary will increase and, and just blessing upon blessing will come to you. And if you ever hear a pastor say that, you need to run out of their church. Because they are not preaching the same Bible that I read and believe and understand. 
Do I believe that you will be blessed? I do, but I don't think it's in the material. I, I was a part of a church for years where that was kind of the, the leaning we were starting to get into, and I was already getting uncomfortable with it. And I heard one of the elders in the church say, yeah, God told me if I tithe 20% this year, I'll make $100,000. Like, weird. Where's that at? Is that, is that in, like, uh, Hebrews, or is that, you know, is, is it a translation I don't have, or, or what? But that's kind of the mentality that they had. And the problem was there are going to be some people who will believe that and they will give and give and give and give and give and not see what they want to see in return because they're giving with the wrong spirit. They're giving with the wrong attitude and mentality. But here's the thing. When it comes to being blessed in return for what you give, it may not be material blessing. It may not be a new job. It may not be a, more of a paycheck. It may be like my mom and she was just able to survive for two extra years. Or maybe it's a spiritual blessing, or maybe it's a way you can bless somebody else without even realizing you've been blessed yourself in the process. So here's the thing, realizing that sometimes God makes decisions that don't make sense to us allows us to see where we're blessed because it's allowing us to see how he's using us for his kingdom, as Ben talked about earlier. We like to talk about chief's kingdom, but that's just a it's just a fun thing to think about. We're a part of a global kingdom. And it, the rules don't always make sense to us. But God blesses us in ways so that we can bless others. In fact, I'd say this, God blesses us so we can be a river, not a reservoir. One of my favorite athletes of all time is Adam Wainwright. He's a pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals, getting ready to start his final season. He's pitched in the big leagues for, gosh, probably about uh, 18 years or so, 19 years or so. When this last contract he signs ends, he'll make just, just below $200 million for his career pitching to baseball. And if you don't know his story, I'd encourage you to look it up. Very strong man of faith, leads a lot of faith-based organizations and, and events in the St. Louis area. And uh, he did an interview a couple of years ago. And as he's, as he's doing this, he's 41 years old. They were talking about retirement the last several years with him. And they asked him, how long are you going to pitch? He goes... God gave me a gift he didn't give to very many people. And as a result of that, I've been able to help a lot of people and bless a lot of people. He goes, so I'm going to do this as long as I possibly can because I want to make as much money as I possibly can so I can give away as much as I possibly can. God didn't bless him to be a reservoir. He blessed him to be a river. Now, again, I, I understand saving is important. Having money put back a six-month or a 12-month fund is important. Having a retirement account is important. Those are wise decisions to make. But hoarding isn't necessarily something that we should be doing. If God has blessed you with more than you need, it's not your needs that he's concerned with. And so can I just encourage you? Trust God with what you have. Because he gave it to you to begin with and, and he has it. It is not about your money, it's about your heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And, and when you realize that everything you have comes from God and that he puts you in a certain place for a certain time, for a certain purpose, it's easier, number one, to see where you're blessed and number two, to see how you can help bless others. So here's kind of a takeaway and a challenge for you today. I want you to recognize what, uh, what you have comes from God and start giving it back to him. And here's my other challenge with this too. Be here the next couple weeks because really what this is is like one really long sermon. I split it up into three parts because I didn't think you wanted to sit here for like an hour and a half. I mean, the 1045 crowd would probably start running you out of here in a few minutes. But uh, 
thought I'd be nice and let you have three weeks of it instead of one really long week, okay? You're welcome. Um, but no, be here the next couple weeks because this is a progression. We're gonna, we're gonna take this and, and see more about what God has for our hearts when we trust him and when we realize that all we ultimately need is him. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for your son, knowing that, that through him, you gave us more than we could even fathom. You gave us more than we could imagine. And God, I pray right now for anybody who's struggling, just with the surrounding, everything around us, seeing that it's difficult financially, seeing that things are hard. God, it can be hard to trust you in the middle of that. So God, I pray that you would show us if we need a reminder why we can trust you, that you are faithful and you're just and you're good. God, I pray that we could trust you with those things that are the most precious to us, that we could put our treasure in you in heaven. God, I pray today that you would be with all of us. If anybody here doesn't know you yet, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them. You would help us lead them to you to get to know you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. We're going to step into a time of communion. And as we do this, I'm reminded, I know we're talking about stuff today. And I don't want to make a big parallel with this. I don't want to make it more than it is. But when it comes to what God has given us, nothing that he has given us is, is greater than the gift of Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 53 says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. As we take communion today, we're reflecting on that, on the price that was paid so that we could have a free life to choose God, to be with God, and to live with him forevermore. So we take these emblems. If you didn't get one, there's tables around the room with a piece of bread and a little cup of juice that symbolize that body and that blood that redeemed us and restored us and allowed us access to God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your son, Jesus. And God, I pray as we take this, Lord, we would honor you, we would bless you, we would remember you, not just what you've done, but what you continue to do and what you will one day do for us again. We pray this in Jesus' name.